The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Tom. Very fine. Thank you. And yourself? Pretty good. Good to have you here again. Thank you. Oh, it's nice to be back. I thought we could start on a pleasant note, Father, with a uh, short email we received from a viewer in Kansas who wrote in and said that I wanted to thank you for all of your programs over the years on What Catholics Believe. You are a true spiritual warrior. I've been posting them on my Twitter account consistently and using your words as reference on good thinking, moral thinking, increasing our faith, and exhorting people to pray the rosary, which is the mightiest weapon against the devil, just like our Holy Mother of Fatima instructed. I also ask protection and indulgence from St. Benedict and his shield. God bless you forever. Well, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. I'm glad to hear that the efforts here are uh, a benefit, you know. Uh, I know, I attribute a great deal of that to you too, Tom, giving your time and being here. So you deserve a lot of gratitude for that also. But I think our, our writer, uh, words of encouragement are really good not to uh, puff us up with pride because they actually have the opposite effect. It's very humbling. And uh, it kind of reinforces the sense of responsibility. But it also gives us a sense of direction that we know what is helpful mm -hmm. because people respond and tell us what is of help to them. Definitely. And so we really appreciate your mm -hmm. telling us that. Yeah. All right. Well, Father, let's jump in. I thought uh, you would enjoy this first email here from a viewer who essentially wants to know, how can John Paul II be known as, quote, Mary's Pope when he was manifestly heretical by his promotion and active participation in worshiping with pagan religions? Uh, he, he cites the example of the uh, Assisi fiasco that happened there, uh, also how John Paul II added the luminous mysteries to the rosary and altering the rosary that Mary revealed to St. Dominic. And he would just like to know, how, Father, can John Paul II be known as a Marian Pope? How is that possible? Uh, it is made possible by modernist propaganda. It's exactly what it is. It's just pure modernist propaganda. And it is meant to deceive people. That big M on his crest... Uh, they say stands for Mary. I don't believe it. <laughs> okay, there are emblems for the Blessed Mother. You'll see them on the old altars. And they're generally weaving together the M and the A and the R and the I and the A. and The, and the, the letters superimposed on each other to form a symbol for our Blessed Mother. The, steer, the, the simple M standing there all by itself. I don't think has ever been a symbol for our Blessed Mother, but that's what you've got on his crest. I mean, it could stand for masonry, you know, it as well as anything else. But I'll tell you, uh, to, to refer to him as a Marian Pope is a travesty, and I agree with the, the writer, he uh, or she, knows exactly what, uh, what the score is. Um, and I think the, uh, the writer knows, knows the answer pretty well, too. I think... As soon as you know the statement is made, it's modernist propaganda. They probably not their head, now their heads and said, "Well, it's what I thought," because <laughs> that's all it is. And the modernists are very good propagandists. Yeah, I mean they'll even try to put a spin on things that Francis says and make him sound so Catholic yeah. um, by making it uh, out to mean the opposite of what he actually says, <clears throat> but only for the benefit of of those who still have the faith. They they have to still be careful. Remember. And the story of the frog in the, in the pot of water, well, they have to turn it up little by little uh, because they don't want to alarm anyone as they're being cooked. <clears throat> and um, this is still going on today, uh, even under Francis, but it certainly was taking place under, under John Paul II, which is why they made, needed to uh, give a conservative spin to virtually everything he said, only for the sake of keeping the conservatives uh, on the hook. Mm -hmm. And it worked. 
And we saw kind of the same thing with uh, with Benedict, how he was associated as this great advocate of traditionalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, just propaganda, totally not true. In fact, the opposite of the truth. Yeah, well, look at this. I mean, that supposedly he's so, so conservative. Of course, compared to... Um, uh, you know, some some of the other modernists were so radical. He might be relatively conservative in that view, but uh, I mean, he he actually turned everything over to Francis. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you? <laughs> and he's sitting back and watching all of this devastation happen. No, no, no I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I don't accept the the facile explanations that um, uh, he's conservative and more conservative than Francis. He basically just allowed the modernists to go on to the next phase of their revolution, that's all. Mm-hmm. And he's just standing there, in a sense, endorsing it, being in the wings there. Uh, there, there. There are even those, you know, Tom, who are claiming that James Francis never really became the Pope because Benedict never really resigned. Or if he did, he didn't resign the whole papacy. So the papacy is now divided between Benedict and Francis, okay? <laughs> Um, this is absolute nonsense, totally contrary to Catholic tradition. But this is what even the conservatives are reduced to, coming up with such deplorable nonsense to try to explain what's happening. Whereas it comes down to a simple invasion of the modernists, and uh, like the invasion of the body snatchers, uh, they're invading. It's the invasion of the snow snatchers. Soul snatchers is what it is. Um, and they, they, people have to simply admit that. What St. Pius X told us over a hundred years ago has come to pass. The modernists were already then inside the vein in the very heart of the church, he said, working there, uh, destroying the very idea of what faith is. And a hundred years before before that, the, the Masons were working to gain control of the papacy. We know this because the popes themselves have told us so. So why can't people simply acknowledge the reality and realize what's happening is the fulfillment of their of their warning. And we have to respond accordingly, and that is we have to uh, hold on to the, the, the traditions of the faith and not give them up for anyone or anything. Again, that's going back a lot more than 100 or 200 years. That's going back to St. Paul, Paul's words to the Thessal- Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, about the time of the coming of the Antichrist, when it says the, the remedy for the Antichrist Christ, and what will safeguard people against even the wiles of the Antichrist are, first of all, a love of the truth, and second of all, holding on to Catholic traditions. There you are. That's what we have to do today. Yep, definitely. Well, uh, speaking of Protestants, there's a, uh, a viewer here who has a couple questions about those uh, living the Protestant religion. He says how we read in Scripture of an angel of light who deceives... So is it possible that those of the Protestant faith, without realizing it, worship the false angel of light as Jesus? This viewer says that he actually himself uh, was a Protestant for years on end, and he says that he walked with joy as a Protestant, praising God daily, trusting him for all things, as I still do now. And it seems that his uh, confusion stems from the fact of how can these how can so many protestants believe that they are uh, as he as he says living for christ they're they're on the path to heaven they assume but yet they are still so wrong how can that how can that be true when they have this sense of i'm doing the right thing i'm living for christ i am on the the narrow path to heaven yet Mm. they are still in the wrong how is that possible well it is possible because of the um the weakness of human nature and the need for God's grace, but people can be deceived, you know, be honestly deceived. I mean, there are Protestants who actually still believe the fundamental Lutheran teaching that we are saved by faith alone. You know, there are three pillars of Protestantism. Uh, Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, right? And with scripture alone, private interpretation, you know. And um, that there is a, an under, a true, true Catholic understanding of the meaning of grace alone, because the Catholic Church has always taught we cannot be saved by our own efforts. We know that. And we're not saved by our works. The Catholic Church never taught that we are saved by our own works. We can't earn heaven. The Church has taught that for 2,000 years now. Martin Luther 
and set that up as a straw man and then knocked it down you know, and said, look what I've done. I've vanquished the church. But it wasn't the teaching of the church. It was an invention of Martin Luther. The church never taught we can be saved by our own, by our own works. That's not true. We know it is by the grace of God, the grace of all the way through to final, final perseverance and faith, hope, and charity that, that ultimately we, we must be saved by the grace of God through Christ. But the idea of uh, faith alone is really, is really the major issue with many Protestants, thinking that, uh, no, th that their works cannot earn them heaven, but thinking that if they have faith, their works cannot get them to hell either, as long as they have faith. That if they, if they, don't, have, if they, if they don't have faith, n no good works are of any value whatsoever. And if they do have faith, they don't trust in their works, okay? That's one thing. The other thing is to say that as long as I have faith, none of the evil I do matters. I mean, that's essentially the teaching of Martin Luther. You know? He said, uh, believe, uh, sin mightily, but believe more mightily. You know, um, and even even to the point in, in his Tishrei, his table uh, talk, that if you think you can resist a temptation, commit the sin just to prove to you to humble yourself that you can't resist temptation, but just trust that God will save you because of your faith, that He's already paid the price for that sin already. And this is an absolute lie, and uh, and actually many would be Protestants have come to see that that can't be so. They see that. There are even um, those today who have kind of brought Protestantism around full circle, curiously enough, because back in Luther's day and so on, the claim was that St. Paul taught the doctrine of faith alone. They claim to be getting this doctrine from St. Paul. And now there are this, there's a reaction against that, of those who are claiming that that's not true, that we're saved by faith alone, and so Paul did not really represent the gospel of Christ. Because the error was that Paul, St. Paul taught that, because he didn't. But now they're saying, well, since St. Paul taught that, taught that, and that's not true, that St. Paul's epistles are suspect. <laughs> so they, they just get deeper and deeper into this uh, the pit that they dig for themselves. It's sad to say. But there are a lot of uh, would-be Protestants now who don't accept the doctrine, really, that faith alone saves. Because now they've come up with an expedient. They say, but if you continue sinning, it's because you don't really believe. Yeah. <clears throat> that if you really believed, you wouldn't continue sinning. So now they're saying that sin shows the insincerity of faith. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a nice backdoor way of trying to get back into the truth again, you know, that works do matter, um, and that they are associated with faith. And the, the Catholic Church has said to be saved is not only to have a matter of having faith, but being faithful. Mm -hmm. That is living your faith. You can't have your faith and then, you know, as St. John says, deny by your actions, and St. James says, deny by your actions what you profess with your mouth. So this is what the Catholic Church has done all along. You have to have works consistent with your faith. Yep. So um, to get back to what the, 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 well, I hope to get back to what our uh, questioner is, is asking about here. Can there be, basically, can there be sincere Protestants who really believe this? Um, not if they really read the, the, the sacred scriptures. Not if they really read them uh, with a desire to know the truth rather than just to read it to bolster some kind of predisposition they have or preconception they have of Luther or Melanchthon or Zwingli or Calvin or any of them. Uh, if they really read the sacred scripture with an open heart and open eyes, wanting to know what God is really saying, they will see very clearly our Lord's words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I command of you? So uh, there's a connection between belief and, and following the commandments. There's no doubt about it. Uh, anybody with a sincerity, a sincere reading of Sacred History will see that. And will not just brush it aside and say, well, that can't be what I think it means because it doesn't coincide with what Dr. Luther has taught. I mean, anybody who reads Sacred Scripture and comes to St. Paul's First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, and now there remain faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity. And St. Paul begins that chapter by saying, 
if I um, sh- should have all faith so as to move mountains and not have charity, it, it, it profits me nothing. It is worthless. Now, any, any Protestant who would read that would have to really stop and think, if he's sincere about faith in Christ, and say, gee, that doesn't coincide with what Dr. Luther has taught me. And then they begin to realize there's something wrong and if it's not, if it's wrong, it's actually evil in this case, because it's a falsification of the gospel. Now, in terms of our, our reader here, he remembers the days that he was a Protestant, okay? And he remembers thinking he was doing God's will and the joy that gave him. Did he actually know Christ at that time? Well, somewhat, but he knew him in a very obscured way. He knew him in an obscured way and a much... Some of what he knew of him, and some very significant things, he did not understand. He was given a false knowledge of Christ and his teaching. But is it possible that he could have had a love for our Lord, even knowing him so imperfectly? Could he still have had a love for our Lord? It's possible. And you do find Protestants sometimes uh, who live more like Catholics than Catholics do. Oddly enough. And the only way I can explain that is, well, either out of pride, because like Masons, they want to show they're just superior, like the Pharisees of old, or because they actually have a sincere love for our Lord. Even though, tragically, they don't really know him for who he really is because of the Protestant propaganda to the country, that they know enough that they have a certain love for our Lord and they want to be faithful to him even though they don't believe it's necessary to be saved. They just believe that it is the right thing to do because if there is a love for our Lord, that's what they would do, to be faithful to him. Whereas you have Catholics who who know it is necessary to be faithful to God to be saved, who don't live according to their faith. Isn't that strange? So you have, on the one hand, Catholics who don't live according to their faith in following the commandments, and Protestants who don't live according to their faith in being faithful to the commandments, in a sense. Um, I I hope I'm not being too obscure, but it is a real paradox. And I can see why our uh, listener is asking this question, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are asking. I do have this caveat, though, okay? This is a very serious caveat. That is, the devil wants to falsify faith. He wants to falsify the teaching of Christ. What better way is there to give someone who is on the wrong track and who is obscuring the, the, the real true faith of Christ and falsifying it to give that person a sense of well-being and not trouble him in any way, but to allow him to feel a great sense of euphoria and to influence others? Because he's such a good person. Why would the devil go tempt someone like that to adultery? If the man is saying, who is faithful to his wife, and living a life faithful to Christ outwardly, but if he's telling others, hey, you don't have to be faithful, and you can be an adulterer, and you can still go to heaven anyway, because that's Dr. Luther's doctrine. And people who admire him say, look at how godly that person is. This must be true, the true faith here. So it has to be very careful about the devil's interest in all this, in falsifying the faith. This is why he will attack Catholics no end and do everything he can to get them to violate their faith, to be bad Catholics because of the scandal they give in driving people away from the true faith. But the other side of that same coin is to allow those who are on the wrong track and falsifying the faith to allow them to appear to have the the image and even the sense of godliness. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though the principles that that are underlying it are wrong and are not what Christ taught. There's a a scripture verse which I think sums up that idea nicely. I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but it's from the the book Mm -hmm. of Proverbs where he says, there is a way that seemeth to man right, but it will actually lead to his damnation. Mm-hmm. That, that, that sums up that idea. Well, well. you know, Tom, uh, we can train scripture verses here. <laughs> because St. Peter, uh, you know, two epistles. Uh-huh. And St. Peter says there are things that people take from St. Paul's 
yeah. epistles and twist to their own yeah, damnation. Yeah. They, they just um, mm. misunderstand them. So yeah. one has to be careful because the devil goeth about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Whom resist ye? <laughs> right. Uh, as St. Peter says also. So uh, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Though. And I, I wanted to, to point out as well, Father, how you mentioned of uh, there's Protestants. Sometimes you have a real love for truth and a real love for mm -hmm. our Lord. I'll, I'll never forget um, when I, I played football in, in high school and sometimes before our practice, we would have some kind of little religious discussion or something among the team. And I'll never forget one, uh, one member of the team. He was... Um, some some sort of Christian he called himself. I'm not sure exactly what he what his classification would be. But he gave one of the most beautiful accounts of our Lord's passion that I've mm -hmm. ever heard in my whole entire life. I mean it almost mm -hmm. brought himself and the rest of the team to tears and I'll, Is that right? I'll I'll never 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 forget that for the rest mm -hmm. of my life. It was just one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard and this is coming from a uh, some some sort of Protestant Christian type person, and I, I think that will stick with me for the well, rest no, of my life. I, I assume he, you continue to pray for him too. Definitely, that he find his way through. Yeah, you can tell someone like that as uh, someone that that really loves yeah. our Lord and really loves the truth. They mm -hmm. just um, unfortunately haven't haven't fully discovered it yet. But I can't help but believe that the graces of God are, are working in him to bring him definitely. to uh, yeah. the true faith. Yeah. Um, in its entirety, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, that's an interesting story. I think we've all probably had experience with that if we have had enough interaction with people like that. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a number of stories I could I could give to go along with that too, actually, but I don't have to because what you said <laughs> is quite adequate. A little, uh, if we're impressed by that, we need to pray for that. Definitely. We should feel a, a very serious obligation. Number one, to live our faith and to pray for those who are still, as we read in the prophet Isaiah, sitting in darkness. Let them see a great light and find their way to the true faith. Yeah. To our Lord of the Blessed Sacrament, the Holy Mass. And Certainly. A, uh, a, a further question in, in this discussion, Father, the same viewer asks, um, well, you know, Tom, in a previous video, you referred to Protestants as Christians, but he asks, how is it? How can anyone truly call themselves a Christian without the Catholic faith? If they are outside the faith, they are outside the faith. So how can a Protestant or these other so-called Christians, are they really Christians? Can we really refer to them as Christians? If they're well, the church, has, the church has referred to them. Okay. Uh, anyone validly baptized is considered by the church a Christian. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean he professes the true faith, but it means he's validly baptized. Okay. And um, so it depends on the definition you give to Christian. If you say Christians are those who profess the Catholic faith, <clears throat> that's fine. One might argue, well, how could you say otherwise? How could you say any less? Yeah. And, but the church does not necessarily limit the title Christians to that. Yeah. Um, properly speaking, I guess you'd say in the strict sense of the word, yes. But in generally, the church refers to those who are validly baptized. And the church acknowledges that there can be valid baptisms even, you know, uh, uh, among non-Catholics. I think that flows nicely into another email we received uh, from a person who would like to know, if someone is in the state of mortal sin, and while in that state there arises a situation where that person is martyred for their Catholic faith, is that person saved? Well, uh, again, you know, I can't just give an opinion. I have to tell you, the Church generally acknowledges that it, it is perfect charity which it motivates the martyrdom. Then, yes, that would be sufficient to forgive all sin. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, and, and the Church sees that if one is willing to s surrender one's life and everything in this world, even enduring torments for our Lord, that is a great indication, probably the greatest indication, that there is a renunciation of all other loves and attachments, but for the love of God. <clears throat> but we can't know what's in someone's heart. Sure. I mean, someone could do that out of pride and obstinacy and say, I will not give in. You'll have to kill me. I will not give in. Hey, look, even Thomas, Cr I think it was a Cranmer. I think it was Cranmer. Who, when he couldn't escape uh, the sentence of execution, went to the stake and actually started wrapping the ropes around himself to tie himself to the stake. He was so furious. But he didn't die out of love for Christ. I mean, he was, he was just furious. How 
angry, you know, spitting fire. <laughs> um, I fear he's spitting fire now, too. But um, <clears throat> the point is that, you know, one can have any number of motives for what he does. A person can get a, an alms out of charity, uh, out of a benevolent love for a poor person, or to impress his girlfriend, you know. Uh, any number of reasons he can do this. Um, but it's the love of God that matters. So if one is truly a martyr, martyr, not in the Islamic sense, but in the Catholic sense, that one is giving his life out of perfect love for God, that would forgive the mortal sin. Anything else would not. Mm-hmm. I believe, Father, that, that I've read before that uh, one... Except for sacramental absolution, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I believe, yeah. Father, that I've, I've read that, uh, that one's entire... <laughs> entire fate depends upon that moment of their death and if they are truly conformed to God's will if they they make this act of complete conformity to God's will and accept the death that he has prepared for them that that uh, regardless of their their past future life that that act alone at the moment of their death will merit them eternal salvation and so their their entire fate depends upon that moment of their death and their willingness to accept the death that God has prepared for them Right, right. Uh, and there, there's a great deal of truth to that. I would just modify, you know, to specify certain things here. Uh, conformity with the will of God implies bringing one's will into unity with God's will, but it takes it. There's still a certain resistance that has to be overcome. And that sometimes is, is um, uh, correlated to the gift of understanding of the Holy Ghost. But not, not, but not but wisdom. Not is actually uniformity with the will of God, where one has brought his will into uniformity with God's will, so there's no resistance. That's the love of our Blessed Mother. That is perfect love, perfect charity. And so, um, you know, I I think it's clear that the Church's understanding is when God gives that grace of perfect love for God, the, the, the seventh, the highest gift of wisdom is given to that soul to bring that soul's will into perfect union with God's will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would just go one more notch sure. higher. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that, that discussion, Father, I think that, uh, that one of the most beneficial things that I found, at least in my life, uh, to, to help with that idea of, of perfect uniformity with God's will is the trustful surrender book. The trustful right. surrender to trustful divine surrender divine it's, it's a very, very short book, but he, mm-hmm. he treats with that, that idea, and I think um, does an amazing job of convincing the reader to right. perfectly Run could with profit read One could with profit read that book over and over again <laughs> I think so. in life, just throughout one's entire life. Yeah, I think so. All right, well, fine, let's move on. This viewer would like... By the way, you know, we had... I'm sorry, Tom. Yeah. Sorry. Well, right. we had a fine gentleman from Florida recommend a book list. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of the spiritual life, that that should be definitely on the book list as well. Um, so if it's not there, we can add that. Okay. Yeah. There are a really number of other spiritual books we could, we could sure. also specify, too. So mm-hmm. that's another one that's definitely a must. I think so. Self-abandonment to divine providence. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, all right, Father, this viewer would like to know about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what exactly that means. Well, it is specifically mentioned in the book of Genesis, right? <coughs> At the creation. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, God uh, placed, God himself placed in that garden, in the, I think in the very center of the garden, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, I think traditionally, again, going back and reading the fathers of the church and commentators and so on, this is a tree whose fruit was subject to a ban. That Adam and Eve were told, you must not eat of that tree. And because if you do, you will die. You see, we can understand it in this way. Uh, God created all things good. Everything he made, as you read through the days of creation, each day ends by God saying, God saw that it was good. And when he created Adam and Eve, he created them not only good, but perfect. Beyond, beyond perfect. He gave them perfect human nature. 
truly a masterpiece, but he endowed that human nature with gifts that were even went beyond human nature, the preternatural gifts. And he even went beyond that, endowing the human soul with the supernatural gift of sanctifying grace. So the divine life was there in the soul of Adam and there in the soul of Eve too. And they were actually children of God by virtue of that divine, of that sanctifying grace in their souls. So they knew only good. They didn't know evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was going to open up evil to them. A whole realm of which they had no concept. Right? But for the fact that it was a matter of pride, ultimately, to submit, don't go there. Right? Don't go there. But you know what happened, right? Um, and as soon as they did, they saw. What did they see? They saw evil. They saw like an abscess open up. Mm -hmm. uh, not only in the material world around them, but in their very souls. Suddenly, it was as though a, a, a great emptiness had come in, and that's what evil is. Evil is not a thing. You can't buy a quart of evil or get a yard of evil, right? Or buy a, a pound of evil. Because evil is a vacuum where there should be something good. There should be something positive, something good, something holy. It's not there. That's why when you say uh, someone is a dishonest person, you're accusing them of having an evil in the soul, which is like an emptiness or an abscess, where there should be a strength. There's a weakness or a vice where there should be a strength or a virtue. Um, and that's what it did. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the effect it had. And the, first of all, the souls of Adam and Eve. It opened up an, an emptiness where there should have been something, a perfection. And that, that was the avenue of, of like a, uh, well, hey, Tom, <clears throat> maybe the analogy is poor. I'm, I apologize for that. These days, they, they have what they call flesh-eating bacteria. <clears throat> You've heard of that, right? Yes. People go swimming, they get this bacterium in them, and it starts eating away at the flesh and the bone. And I, that's what evil is. That's what evil does. It just eats away at what should be there, right? Um, the physical evil of blindness applies only to those who should be able to see. You know, And a human being should be able to see is made to be able to see, is designed by God to be able to see. If, they, if the person can't see, there's an evil, a physical evil, because of the lack of that power. Well, in the soul, when there's a spiritual abscess, that's what it is. It's a lack of a virtue in the soul that really should be there. And so the, the, it's as though that there's a disfigurement. That is why in the Bible, you find the most common symbol of evil in the physical world is leprosy where the body begins to disintegrate and because the nervous system is atrophying right and that's a very evil uh, I mean it, it's a terrible thing obviously uh, but um, but it's much worse when it's a matter of the soul mm -hmm. Did, do you think that I mean, I guess the reader, the writer will have to judge for himself whether that really addresses his question or not, but do you think that... I think so. I'm sure we'll find out. I'm sure I'll find well, out. I, I hope we do. Right? <laughs> uh, we, let him down. Yeah, we, we received a couple of requests from viewers uh, who would like, if possible, sometimes in our programs, uh, to have them uh, send in problematic Bible verses or something that they would like more of, more of an explanation on and to have you kind of expound upon various Bible verses. And so I thought that would be a good idea. Sure, um, sure. But, but Actually, somebody called me uh, just uh, over the Christmas mm -hmm. and asked about the Gospel of the Epiphany. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and then the Gospel of the Holy Family, too. They had, they had conundrums in there. And uh, one of those had to do with the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph 
finding our Lord in the temple. Right? Uh, our Lord was 12 years old. They went to the temple. And uh, our Lord became a man before the law, even at that tender age, right? And he allowed the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph to take an entire day's journey off with the caravan northward back to Galilee. And he didn't say anything. He just didn't go with them. And they didn't know he wasn't with them. There are a couple of possible explanations for that. <clears throat> they were traveling in a caravan. Uh, some say it's because our Lord was very often help, helping others mm -hmm. in the caravan. And this was normal for them. Especially it would have been for someone who just turned 12 and was considered more of a more mature, like a reaching maturity. So that neither the Blessed Mother of St. Joseph knew. But someone else suggested to me <clears throat> the reason why... Uh, neither the Blessed Mother St. Joseph knew our Lord wasn't there, but it's because it was customary for the men to travel separately from the women. Now, I'm not, I don't know that, um, but it's possible, very possible. <coughs> and there could be very compelling evidence for that. I, I profess ignorance about that. Either way, they traveled a, a day's journey, came to nightfall, and our Lord did not return to them. They went looking for him, couldn't find him. They realized he wasn't there. And they probably heard from others that none of, them, none of them had seen him with them. So they probably realized they had left him behind in Jerusalem. But the horrible thought must have, might have occurred to them, my goodness, what if he fell by the wayside and they, or had an accident on the way and he's lying somewhere in the desert in the night and we, we don't know. Perhaps that idea occurred. That would have been a real martyrdom for the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph. But you know, any mother, and, and, but also St. Joseph, who had that special charge from God the Father to watch over his son, must have felt just horrible. Mm -hmm. Just horrible. Even thinking, well, what have we done? How have we failed? You know, if we, um, why would the, uh, our Lord, why would Christ, why would this, you know, Jesus, why would he uh, do this? Uh, and why would God the Father hide it from them? You know, were they somehow at fault in this? So um, various spiritual writers have raised these questions, you know. But they had to overnight it there and then turn back the next day, very possibly just the two of them, you know, traveling through the desert to go back to Jerusalem, retracing their steps. And that took them an entire day's journey, too. And so it was nightfall when they arrived back in Jerusalem. So they went to look for our Lord, and of course they went and they found him in the temple. I think they would have known that that would be the first place to look, <laughs> right? Because it is his temple. And they found him there. Now notice, the mystery of the rosary, the fifth joyful mystery, is not entitled the losing of Jesus, or the searching for Jesus, the child Jesus. It's the finding of the child Jesus. That's the, the name of the mystery. So while in praying the mystery, we do think about the losing of our Lord, the searching for our Lord, the heartache of Our Lady, the heartache of St. Joseph, all of that, we think of that. But the essential point is to focus on the finding of our Lord. And where did they find him? They found him in the temple. Where? Either in, in the women's court, or maybe Our Lady even saw him through the gate of the priest's court, where she couldn't go. But there he was, in any case. There he was, surrounded by the doctors of the law, and he was teaching them. He was teaching the teachers of Israel. Now that must have really been very impressive to them. When they saw that, they must have been astonished. Right? Because the doctors of the law, these are the doctors of the old law now, and here's the New Testament personally present among them. Right? And he's teaching them. What a moment that must have been. The finding of our Lord there, surrounded by the doctors. They were astonished at the answers that our Lord was giving them. <clears throat> Imagine how astonished Our Lady and St. Joseph must have been to find him there, mm -hmm. <clears throat> teaching this august assembly of the, of the doctors of the law of misery. You know? <clears throat> but what they find puzzling is <laughs> that at some point, of course, this discussion broke off, and Our Lady spoke to our Lord, says, why, said, Son, why hast thou done so to us? Thy father and I have been seeking thee in sorrow. And our Lord answers with a question. 
Uh, answering the Blessed Mother's question with another question, why has thou sought me? Didst thou not know that I must be about my father's business? And the way that's rendered in Greek is very interesting, okay? Because there's no substantive noun for business or affairs or anything. Literally, it says, basically, I must be uh, concerned myself with the things of my father. You know, or... Anyway, it's, inter it's just an interesting expression in Greek. But regardless... Um, Then the gospel then says they did not understand what he said to them. And people stop at that and they wonder, how could he not understand? How could Mary not understand? How could the Blessed Mother not understand this? Now, someone was telling me, who had called, actually called me from New York about it, to ask about it, because he said other people were asking him. And he always wondered, and they always wondered, but nobody ever asked. So they thought they would call me. And just, I guess, add to the confusion. <laughs> but in any case, he said, um, you know, how could the Blessed Mother not, not know this? So he said he went to a, read a commentator, and the commentator said, and he didn't identify who the commentator was, <clears throat> that this meant that the Blessed Mother did not know how he would manifest his divinity. She knew that he was divine. She understood that. But what she did not understand is the exact manner in which he was going to make this known. That's what the commentator said. Now, do I believe there is truth to that? I do. Do I think that is a good answer? Not really, because I think it's extremely incomplete. I don't think it really satisfactorily answers the question myself. Although I do definitely think it's in the right track. <clears throat> but as I told this fine gentleman the inquirer. Look, when we see that statement that the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph did not understand what our Lord was saying, remember, <clears throat> the whole episode, all that took place was a mystery to the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph from the very beginning. I mean, there are all kinds of questions about this. Why would our Lord let them go like that? Uh, why would he put them through this? To travel as they did, and, and a, a day's journey, only to force their coming back with great anguish in their hearts. Why would he do that to them? That's a mystery, isn't it? And you can imagine the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph not understanding why would God do this to them, especially when they found him safe and sound. And he simply had basically just kind of perhaps stood there and watched them go <laughs> out of the caravan, didn't even wave goodbye. Now, this, this is very mysterious, let's face it. And do you understand why? Do I understand why? Do they understand why? Not necessarily at the time. <clears throat> but that was part of the cross, part of the suffering they had. And our, our Lady had the, the one day, and then the second day, and then the beginning of the next day to anguish over this. And so, you know, when she asks our Lord why he's done this, she's already saying there are certain things that are not, we don't understand, I don't understand. This is a mystery to her. So it's not surprising, really, that when our Lord answers her as he did, it just deepens the mystery. The mystery was already there. Mm -hmm. But it's a mystery that would become clear to her in a unique way that it became clear to no one else. That God allowed her to suffer. And these three days were kind of a preamble, as it were, to the three days of our Lord in the tomb. But she lost him there. But she had already been through that and consented to that. I mean, she was already willing to accept that cross. And she showed that. And she didn't complain. She accepted that as a cross from God that he wanted her to endure. And she didn't question him. She asked, why hast thou done this? And that was his answer. And that's what she accepted. That was all. Mm -hmm. She accepted that. That's remarkable. You know? And it shows something in her. A complete resignation to the will of God, a complete uniformity of her will with God's will. And um, you notice something, Tom, that 18 years later, when our Lord was 30 years old, uh, well, I, yeah, I guess what, 18 years later, at the age of 30, there came a moment when they were at the wedding feast of Cana, 
And Our Lady made a request of Our Lord. And I always see that in connection with what Our Lord said to her that day. And at the age of 12, he was found teaching the doctors of the law. He said to her, I must be about my father's business. And 18 years later at the wedding feast of Cana, it was the Blessed Mother then who made the call, work the miracle, and begin the road to Calvary. Begin your public life, manifest. Hey, we are in the season of the Epiphany right now. The first Epiphany was the arrival of three kings. The second, the baptism in the Jordan. The third is this, the wedding feast of Cana, and the manifestation of our Lord's divinity by this this miracle. So when uh, our Lord said to Our Lady, what is this to thee and to me? It wasn't just to me. He didn't say, what is that to me? He said, what is this to thee and to me? As though they were in this together. And they really were. My hour is not yet come. And what he was making very clear is, she knew what that meant, my hour. Our Lord spoke about his hour numerous times. She knew that. Nobody else did. She knew. So she knew exactly what she was asking. And she knew exactly what he meant when he said, my hour is not yet come. The point being that he would do this, but there was one reason and one reason alone that he would do this. There's one reason why it became that hour, because she asked. That was the only reason. She asked him to do this. And it shows the power of prayer and the power of her prayer in particular, that she actually, a mother, sent her own son on the road to Calvary to die for sinners. That's amazing. Really, really astounding, you know. And I, I can't help but see the wedding feast of Cana, what happened there. And, the, and then later on, the three days of our Lord's burial, I can't help but see that other than in the light of what took place in this uh, at the age of 12, when Mary, our Blessed Mother, was allowed to endure this, and she accepted it. Uh, and it was all a matter of that, our Lord being here to accomplish the Father's will. Mm-hmm. She accepted it and embraced it absolutely, without reservation. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, when you mentioned, uh, you know, someone was saying, well, let's talk about obscure. Well, the verses aren't obscure. The understanding is obscure, right? <laughs> you know that. Um, but if we can try to uh, overcome the obscurity in the mind, uh, then we're that far, much farther ahead, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And I hope I haven't confused everyone. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, just just food for our thought and maybe meditation sure. for the uh, fifth joyful mystery. Yeah. Father, you, you mentioned the the sorrow that uh, that our Blessed Mother and Saint Joseph felt as they were searching for our Lord, and you mentioned how their uh, their anxiety over uh, perhaps something had, had happened to our Lord in, in the desert or whatnot. <laughs> but I've read before that the, the the chief sorrow that they felt during that time was. Uh, because of their humility, they thought mm-hmm. that perhaps they were insufficient, that our Lord had left them because mm-hmm. they hadn't mm-hmm. lived up to his standards. They were found wanting somehow. Exactly. And I, yeah, I, uh, yeah, exactly. It, it is the fifth joyful mystery, but I've read before how that's how there is this, this idea, this, this theme of sorrow in there, and how mm-hmm. this is the fifth joyful mystery is a good transition into the sorrowful Transition mysteries. to the sorrowful mysteries. You're right, mm-hmm. Tom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because we go directly from there into our Lord's agony in the garden, right? In the mysteries of the rosary. And, uh, yeah. It is a mystery. Uh, there's a connection. Yeah. Well, Father, this seems rather trivial to go from, from sacred scripture into uh, silly current events, but we have uh, a couple here that, uh, that I know you wanted to, to get to tonight. This, this first one here is about the uh, how the Notre Dame, the title here is, a Notre Dame president shouldn't attend the March for Life while providing, while providing abortion uh, coverage. And this is what the Alumni Association, a Notre Dame Alumni Association, the Sycamore Trust, is saying to the Father John Jenkins of Notre Dame. Yes, uh, Father John Jenkins is the longtime president of Notre Dame University, yeah. which is, of course, dedicated to Our Lady, Notre Dame, right? And there was a huge controversy under Obamacare whether the university would submit to providing uh, contraception and abortion and coverage. And now that that has been taken away, uh, John Jenkins, Father John Jenkins, the president, 
has determined that it, the university will continue providing this uh, to its employees. And the Sycamore group, which is uh, an alumni association, is a protesting and is actually talking about filing legal action against the university. And so this is kind of a betrayal of trust. Um, but also they're saying that Father John Jenkins should not go to the March for Life in Washington, D.C. this year because that would be the height of hypocrisy for him to show up there while his university is still promoting in this way, promoting contraception and, and abortion, right, mm -hmm. uh, in these significant ways, and he shows up and pretends to be leading some kind of mm -hmm. co-pro-life uh, faction, you know, from the university. So it's interesting that there are some alumni of the University of Notre Dame who are sounding off about this and making their thoughts known. One in particular, Father, you said, quoting here, he says, I certainly hope you will have the grace not to accompany the students and faculty. It would be hypocritical and a severe embarrassment to the students and faculty if okay. you did show up. Question for him. Not for John Jenkins. <laughs> Father John Jenkins. Question for that gentleman you're talking about. Isn't it already hypocritical that he's the president of the Notre Dame? I mean, isn't that hypocritical enough? And why would he have the grace not to come to the March for Life if he's already being this absolute hypocrite and being the, the priest president of Notre Dame and doing that. You see what I mean? In other words, let's trace this problem back to its source here. And, uh, I mean, if I, I mean, I'm sorry, another analogy perhaps or another connection. If I were to say, well, you know, I'm not saying that Father uh, John Jenkins is a gangster, okay? Because they can morally, I mean, it, you know, it can mark what's even worse than that. But, but if you had a gangster, so look, he's killed all these people, and it would really, really be hypocritical for him now to show up at this pro-life rally here. So, you know, let's, let's hope he has the grace not to at least do that. <laughs> and you say, no, no, wait a minute. I mean, if he's if he's killed all these people and is still walking around you know, pretending that everything's okay and he's an upstanding citizen and so in the first place, and a good Catholic, I mean, if he's a real good Catholic priest and he's, uh, then, I mean, where does the hypocrisy start and where does it end here? Um, so I think, I'm just saying that I think the, uh, the alumni of Notre Dame should uh, begin to trace this back to its source and realize, you know, the fact that we have a man like that as the president of this university, is already a travesty, and it is intolerable. Mm -hmm. It it's, it's really goes much deeper than whether or not he shows up in Washington, D.C. This year, I think it's on, what, uh, January 19th or something like that. Um, it's, it's much worse than that. Mm -hmm. Father, I thought you should know one of our staff members commented and said if there's one person that you could punch in the face, it would be Father Jenkins. So, yes, well, I agree, <laughs> but uh, I, I wouldn't do it. Um, but here's what he said. But 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 I, I know that staff member, okay, and um, he is very zealous, very zealous. And he said the reason he would say something like that is because when Obama came to Notre Dame, there were protesters, pro-life protesters. One of them was an 80-year-old priest who was kneeling, praying the rosary. And Father John Jenkins had the security detail forcibly remove that 80-year-old priest. Well, he, our, uh, our friend, commentator, I'll call him Jorge, okay? <laughs> Jorge said that they, they beat up this 80-year-old priest who was doing nothing but kneeling and praying the rosary when Obama was there visiting campus. And uh, that's why he said, uh, that he, Jorge, said, that's why I could suck <laughs> Father, Jen Father Jenkins in good, in good uh, conscience, okay? But uh, I still don't recommend it, you know, because I, I just don't think it would really solve the problem. And we always have to remember that the, the second law is uh, a prudence is... If you're going to make things better, go ahead. <laughs> but the first law is, is don't, make, don't make things worse. Okay? And I think that would tend to make things worse. Yeah. So to walk up to Father John Jenkins and say, you know, 
I, I really, really could, could sock you right in the face for what you did to poor old Father McGillicuddy, whatever his name is, but I won't because I am more of a Catholic than you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that would probably be spiritually the equivalent of uh, landing a blow. Mm -hmm. Anyway, call me a pacifist if you want, but I don't think I am. Speaking of making things worse. Jorge, I'll see you in the confession. <laughs> well, I'll hear you. Uh, speaking of making things worse, Father, any comments on a President Oprah? President Oprah? President Oprah. Uh, comment on the idea of President Oprah? Uh, I would say, uh, just and say only this, our country is really knee-deep in mud right now. Mm -hmm. And I say that because Oprah's home out in California has been damaged in one of these mudslides, and I understand it's, well, I, I don't know, it's filled with mud, but it's, a, it's been damaged by mudslides, and that she was actually giving tours out there of what was going on. And I would say that this is symbolic of the state of the entire country. It's just under mud. When we think that an Oprah Winfrey, or, you know, another, another great intellectual, moral leading light of the world, Roseanne Barr, even weighed in, I use the expression uh, advisedly, weighed in saying that she would be an even better president than Oprah Winfrey. And you know what? We're, we're, we're up to our ankles or knees in mud right now to think that uh, anybody could get on board with that and say, well, gee, that's a great idea. <laughs> Oh, heaven help us. Heaven help us. Yeah. <laughs> How it's so superficial. Everything is everything is just style. There's no substance in it left anymore, it seems, to people. And uh, that's because faith has just uh, <clears throat> been uh, eaten away by modernism. This is what's left. And it's uh, tragic. Talk about eating for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So just to be clear, as of now, you're withholding your endorsement? Uh, for the time being, okay. I am, yes. I, 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 you know, Oprah is new age, and that's, that's where we, I guess, I guess the new world order isn't enough. We want to go in now into a new age, even, uh, with President Oprah. Hey, maybe we can get some of these books we've been talking about into her book club with well, an endorsement. Well, Never okay. Know. Okay, good luck to you. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, another one here, Father. The Vice President of German Bishops' Conference wants to bless homosexual couples. The Vice President of the German Bishops' Conference. And uh, that's a bishop, uh, Joseph Franz, Franz Joseph, Franz Joseph uh, Bode, B-O-D-E. Yes. B -O -D -E. yes. And he wants, to, uh, he wants to open discussion in Germany about having an official... Novus Ordo Church blessing of homosexual couples. Tom, it's a thing. It's coming. It's coming. I mean, Francis is open to this, and uh, so many. Uh, they're promoting their clergy who are promoting the LGBTQ, uh, MRYZ you know, uh, agenda. Right? They're promoting their clergy into positions of higher and higher uh, influence and greater and greater power within the Novus Ordo. In fact, one of the, was it one of the bishops in the Vatican or one of the cardinals actually just came out and is on record as saying that the homosexual activity in the Vatican is worse than it has ever been before under Francis. And what does that tell you? And there have been some really wild scandals that have happened there. Uh, public scandals that have scandalized all of Italy and, and, and then the world. Uh, from some of these things going on in the Vatican right now, under Francis. So, um, well, it, it's, it's, it's going to be coming more and more. So, um, we just have to keep reminding ourselves, though, as we do with the, with the abortionists, when the abortionists lie, we need to remind ourselves, they kill babies, why wouldn't they lie? Why should we be surprised at that? So when we see modernists destroy the Mass and the sacraments of Christ and falsify the very faith of Christ, so why wouldn't they do that? Why would they stop short of that? Nothing 
is too evil for modernists to promote. Yeah. Once they've completely drunk their fill of modernism. Now, there are those who do subscribe to certain modernist principles, but they're not completely intoxicated with modernism yet. But those who fully embrace the entire modernist mind mentality, th th there's nothing more lethal to the faith than that, right? And so it's like having a disease, but you're not dead yet. Uh, so don't be surprised, we shouldn't be surprised that they're modernist by degree. But uh, Francis is not modernist by degree. He is modernist to the bone. And those bishops of his who uh, follow him also, we, we would expect that they are reaching that point now mm -hmm. where there's nothing that is sacred to them anymore. I've had a couple of quotes here from the article would, would be revealing. He says of these... Uh, quote, irregular situations that much is positive. And these much is positive. Much, much is positive. He, okay. he, he uh, blames the, the Catholic Church's past teaching on these matters as blind rigorism. And it's difficult to say from the outside whether someone is in the state of mortal sin. Uh, he, uh, I think we should, I think we have to discuss this matter in more detail within the church and uh, asks how we can accompany these these individuals pastorally and accompany them. Accompany them. Hey, listen, if he keeps talking like that, he's going to be the next pope. Yeah, he's right there. He's going to talk himself right into the Vatican. Is there not so much positive and good and right so that we have to be more just? When I say pope, I mean pope at the Novosoro. Get that right. I'm <laughs> talking about the Novosoro pope. Okay. So, um, but this is the, the mania yeah. that uh, besets the modernists. So, um, it's not surprising, Tom. This is the way things are going. And this is a natural progression for the modernists. Yeah. Um, <coughs> ultimately, I would just say, look, if, if you are a Novus Ordo Catholic who still has the faith, and there are people out there, we know them because they keep returning to the traditional Mass every week that goes by. More and more people who have been um, just surviving somehow by the grace of God in their faith in the Novus Ordo for years and years are finding their way back to the traditional faith and finding their way back to practice the traditional Catholic religion. And each one of them I consider a miracle of grace that somehow God has preserved them uh, all during that time from the, uh, the, the contagion of modernism. But I want to, you know, the people who are still with the Novus Ordo and hanging on for dear life or dear death, as the case may be, to realize what they're dealing with and to realize that is not Catholicism. I have to go back to the traditional Catholic faith. This is my hope and my prayer for all of them. Mm -hmm. Father, I, th I think this is a, a perfect example of um, this this logical error that so many people, for example, the Society of St. Pius X makes. I forget the exact uh, Latin terminology for it, but it's this this uh, this logical process, which essentially says if you take a logical process to its logical conclusion, if you extend that argument out and see that that ends in absurdity, then that principle is flawed. And I think those who, who try and stay within the Novus Ordo or these people like the SSPX who try and stay on and try and uh, kind of mend fences with, with Francis and this new order, this is where it's heading. If you follow this natural progression that they are making, the Novus Ordo Church is becoming more and more and more liberal and, and delving farther and farther away from the truth. And if you just simply follow that to its natural, logical conclusion and see where they're heading, there's no possible way that you can have any kind of of harmonious relationship with this mm -hmm. monstrosity. Right. When they are heading in the direct trajectory they are, getting farther and farther and farther away from the faith, then how do you meet them half anywhere along the line? Mm -hmm. You're just getting farther and farther away from the faith, too, <laughs> and trying to somehow find a common ground with them. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly, John. And, you know, uh, by the time you're done, okay, when you, if you want to say, okay, I'm going to stay in the Novus Ordo, but I'm going to bring traditional elements of Catholicism to, with me to the Novus Ordo, what you wind up with a, is a hybrid religion that is the mixture of two things that are mutually contradictory, uh, mutually opposed to each other. You don't wind up with real traditional Catholicism. You might say you don't even wind up with the Novus Ordo, but I would say, yes, you do. Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as a traditional Novus Ordo 
or a Novus Ordo tradition. There's no such thing. And uh, what you're trying to create is some third thing, which is neither traditional Catholicism nor the Novus Ordo, but I've got news for you. It is the Novus Ordo. <laughs> it is completely the Novus Ordo because what you're saying is two mutually contradictory faiths and religions can belong in the same church. And that's what ecumenism is all about. So you're already admitting a bedrock principle of the Novus Ordo modernism, even in attempting to blend tradition with the Novus Ordo, even in attempting to find a compatibility between the traditional faith and the modernist faith. It's impossible. Don't take my word for it. St. Pius the Tink made it very clear. So... Um, I would recommend people go back and consult him again because he spoke very clearly and definitively about it. But I, I just ask that uh, people pray very seriously. Uh, pray to the Holy Ghost for guidance and pray repeatedly the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel too uh, because there are a lot of, a lot of souls that are, who are under attack out there right now. And uh, pray the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel also for the Society of St. Pius X. Yeah. That did not drink the Kool-Aid of Francis, um, Francis Novus Ordo, and uh, just become part of that, and perhaps one of the most dangerous agent, agents of the Novus Ordo, by following through on this plan that they have. <clears throat> um, you know, we, we, we are warned about the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, uh, about the Masons' plan to infiltrate the Catholic Church and take over the papacy. Well, I, I don't see the plan of the SSPX saying, well, we're going, to, we're going to infiltrate the Novus Ordo and take over the papacy as being any better than that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just completely foolhardy. So um, we just have to maintain the integrity of our traditional Catholic faith and practice and not compromise it. It's the only way. Sounds good to me. You know that. I don't have to convince you. Do I? <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no, of course not. No. Well, uh, congratulations, by the way, on your new child. Thank you. Thank yes, you very I'm much. very happy. It's an early uh, Christmas present. Yeah, a beautiful Christmas present. Yep. Very beautiful uh, baby, and uh, I must say, already showing great virtue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just like her mom. Just like her mom. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. We've had a great program. We've covered a lot, so thank you for well, your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yep. And thanks yeah. to our viewers, too. Yeah, definitely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.